All right, all right, all right. New Life East, find your seat. It is so great to be with you this morning. Hey, like Pastor Colin said, um, we know that Pastor Andrew's probably watching online, so would you just turn to the camera if you could and like give him a big wave and a shout out, tell him we miss him. Yeah, now you can give him some applause now. You were waving, I give him some applause. We love you, we miss you. Uh, I'm sorry that you're stuck with me on this Labor Day weekend, but it is great to be with all of you. You know, I, w- I, was, telling, I was telling Pastor Andrew and, and Pastor Colin last week or the week before um, that, that when I visited here, when I came here in the summer, I think it was Father's Day, there's just such a great sense of innocence and of purity and belonging. And I love meeting different ones of you and hearing you say, look, we, we live close by or we just felt that the Lord was calling us to come serve this, the mission out here. And you're, you're doing it. You're doing great work. And I also feel, you know, with Rory coming on and the team getting together and the great momentum of the family meeting this last Sunday night, you guys buckle up, New Life East, because it's about to, there's something that's about to happen. I just believe that. I sense that in my heart. And I, that, that doesn't mean like, oh my gosh, we're going to this and this and this. I'm not going to fill in the blanks. I'm just telling you, I have this sense of excitement that the Lord is about to do uh, some new and fresh and wonderful things here at New Life East. And I just love that you're here and a part of it. Everybody feeling all right this morning? All right. Well, let's pray and then we'll jump into the scriptures. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your spirit that is alive in us. We ask that you would speak now. Wake us up to yourself. Call us to yourself. Open our hearts and our minds to believe and to understand and to surrender to you. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Uh, my wife Holly and I have four kids and two, three girls and one boy, girls, girl, girl, boy, girl. And uh, our girls are all, they, they're really into dance and musical theater and it's super fun. And it's, you know, I have some ways of kind of getting involved in their world a little bit, you know, with the music and my kind of uh, story. And so we can connect on that. Uh, my son, when he was really little, started playing soccer. Now, I was not much of an athlete in, in terms of physical ability. I was one of those guys where those who can't teach, you know. So, like, I understand most of, you know, when you pick a game or a sport, I can analyze it. I could be like a color commentator. And so I, when, when, my, when Jonas was about three and a half, we signed him up for rec league soccer. And people would be like, oh, you, Glenn, you grew up in Malaysia. Like, you, you probably play soccer. I'm like, well, I mean, I played with my friends, but I understand the game. So and at three and, three and a half, four years old, there's not a lot of strategy going on. You know, you're just trying to make sure the kids don't pick their nose or pick the grass and, like, at least pay attention to what's going on. But I'm, I'm pleased to say, and I had some other dads helping me, we kind of got this really, we kind of got the boys to a really serious place where they were able to think about formations, and they were dominating, you know. I mean, I'm looking at Fitz and Lisa here. Isaiah used to be on Jonas's team for a little while. Sorry, bro. Sorry to call you out. Um, but when, when Jonas was real little, so those first few years of rec league soccer, you're not supposed to keep score. You know, that's what they say. You're not supposed to keep score because they're there just to have fun. But I say, you know what's more fun? Winning. Like winning is a lot of fun. So we kept score. And, uh, and parents would come over and they'd be like, hey, what's the score? And I'd be like, oh, it's, you know. And I'm pleased to say, and then as they got a little bit older, seven, eight, then you were allowed to keep score. And so in the course of those four years, I think there were eight seasons, eight games a season, 64 games. We won 62, lost zero, 
and had a tie for two because soccer, you know, you can end in a tie. So, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of that. But, but all those boys went on and they're all like doing other stuff. And it's kind of fun. Now, you're sitting here in the room as adults and you're like, man, wouldn't life be simpler if we just knew what game we were playing and who's keeping score? I mean, part of what makes life difficult, part of what makes adulting difficult is like people keep changing the game all the time. And first you're like, okay, this is the game. You got to do this and then you got to have an apartment and then you got to, and you're like, okay, okay, I'll try. And then someone says, no, actually, this is what you need to do and you need to be, not get in debt and you need to save this much money. And you're like, okay, now I'm behind in that game. And then you, maybe you get a job and you're like, okay, this is what it takes to climb the ranks in this job. And then you switch jobs or you switch careers and you're like, I don't even know anymore. And it's part of the confusion in life is we, we don't know what the game is. We don't know how to win. We don't know if we're behind, if we're ahead. And it's, it's, a, diff- it's a tricky thing. Several years ago, eight, eight years ago or so, when I began my uh, doctoral program in the UK, universities in the UK are a little bit different. And the way that I was doing my, it's a research-driven doctorate. But that first year, there's a couple of seminars. And it's, it's a pretty intense first year where there's really only two papers, two projects, research projects that you're doing that first year. And if you don't do well enough in that, you don't get to go on into doctoral work. They, they just say, thanks for trying. Here's a second master's degree or something like that. And so I, I went there. And the, the warm-up for the first paper is another paper. And they give you kind of like a feedback grade. And my first grade was like... I don't know, it was like 70 or 72. Now, it's a moment of vulnerability here, guys. I, I, I grew up, you know, Asian parents, and we do fit that stereotype of achievement and academics. I mean, like, if I got a B, my mom would say, that's okay, but do you think you could have gotten an A? I'm like, yeah, I probably could have. You just need to study harder. So I'm not used, I'm not accustomed to getting a 72. Just candid, safe place. Is that okay, right? And so I was like, well, what happened? What did I do wrong? And, you know, well, what am I going to say? Can I tell my parents? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, and and so, so I went to talk to one of the, you know, um, supervisors, and they said, oh, no, 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 that, that's actually quite good. In fact, if you got a 75, you should be teaching the seminar, you know. I was like, oh, well, this is a, this is a very different grading system, and th- this is the trouble with life, isn't it? Like, like that's a picture of life. You, you change context, or you change jobs, or you change the lens that we're being evaluated by, and we're like, I don't even know where I stand. Now, we're in this series on the book of Galatians, and we're calling it the Revolutionary Gospel. And today, in part four, we're talking about drawing lines and keeping score. Drawing lines and keeping score. And if there's one thing that we are especially confused about sometimes is, how does this whole church and faith and God thing work? Where do we stand? And this was a key question for the church in Galatia. I want to show you a map really quickly of the region in the first century. You see Rome and Italy on the western edge and Galatia kind of on the eastern edge. And then you see Antioch. You go down south of Antioch, you see Damascus. That's where Paul had his encounter with Jesus and was knocked off his horse quite literally. And then you go further south and there's Jerusalem, which was the hub of the Jesus movement in the first century. These Jewish followers of Jesus But as the good news of Jesus began to spread and it went up north first and it started to go to these uh, Gentile or non-Jewish communities. And it, it spread outward from Jewish communities, Jewish synagogues in these cities outward to non-Jewish people. There were several questions that began to emerge. And the central question was this. Do you have to become Jewish to become Christian? 
If you're a Gentile, do you have to sort of look like, talk like, eat like, think like a Jewish person in order to belong to the Jewish Messiah, Jesus? And this question, by the way, had some social or political ramifications because Rome, all the way over there in the West, kept their empire intact by allowing people to worship their regional gods. And they kind of said, basically, don't disrupt the social fabric, just go along. But Rome gave an exemption, a religious exemption, if you will, to one group of people. Any guesses who that was? It was to the Jews. They said, look, these Jewish people, they're kind of strange. They don't have idols. We kind of don't know if they, what their God is like. But they've been doing this for a long time. So you guys just carry on and don't make trouble. Now all of a sudden, these non-Jewish people are saying, excuse me, we'd like to claim that exemption as well because we believe in Jesus, this Jewish Messiah. And Rome's like, what? Can anybody just get in on this exemption now? This is weird. So there's a social political problem where Rome is saying, um, guys, you, you look like two different groups of people. And so then the Christians, the Jewish Christians were like, okay, guys, don't blow our exemption status. Just blend in. Be a bit more like us. Assimilate with us. But that introduced a theological problem, if you will, which is, does God have two grades of children? Does the church have first class and second class? Does the church have a varsity team and a JV team? How do we reconcile these questions? And that's what Galatians is dealing with. And so we come now to this middle part of Galatians 2. Last week, Pastor Andrew preached about the radical unity that happens in Christ. And that's what Paul is contending for here in Galatians. In Galatians 2, verse 11, he says, But when Cephas, another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was wrong. I mean, they didn't have Facebook, but here's Paul writing a letter airing out this uh, conflict here. And then he says, Peter had been eating with the Gentiles before certain people came up from James. In other words, when he came and he was, he was hanging out with Gentiles, he would eat with them, which a good Jew would not have done. But then these people come up from James, he began to back out and separate himself because he was afraid of the people who promoted circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also joined him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas got carried away with them in their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they weren't acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, pause here for a minute. Paul's not talking about some sort of trivial thing or you like chocolate ice cream, I like vanilla ice cream. He's saying, listen, what's at stake here is more than preferences. What's at stake here is the truth of the gospel. If the gospel is true, then you shouldn't have these dividing lines about who you can eat with and not eat with. And we're going to unpack more of that in a moment. But he says, look, you got to act. They, he wasn't acting consistently with the truth of the gospel. And so I said to Peter in front of everyone, if you, though you're a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you require the Gentiles to live like the Jews? I mean, imagine the scene. This is kind of like my kids who are supposed to eat gluten-free, but sometimes they go to a friend's house and they forget all about it and they're like stuffing their face with pancakes and bread and all the stuff. And then, you know, my wife or I show up and they're like, oh, sorry, separate themselves. I'm gluten-free, actually. I don't touch the stuff. <laughs> and this is, like, this is like Paul. He's like, dude, you were just eating with the Gentiles. And now you're like, what, selectively? Like, yeah, well, why are you doing this? Because this group from James came up. 
Now, when we think about this circumcision and clean eating, eating certain foods, not, it, it sounds so strange to us. Like, what is this all about? And maybe it just reinforces a stereotype that you have, which is the Old Testament was full of fussy rules and the New Testament kind of like just grace. And maybe your impression by default is that God in the Old Testament was like a, a fussy stickler first-time parent. Everything's on the schedule. Don't interrupt nap time, feeding time. You know, everything's rigid. And then God in the New Testament is like a grandparent. You want cookies at 10 o'clock at night? Sure! Is this what, well, what's happening? And I want to just pause for a few minutes. And it's worth unpacking how grace is actually there in the Old Testament. And how God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. But... There is something that has changed. Something radical has changed. But first, let's look at some of the ways that grace is there, the gospel in the Old Testament. How does the story of God's rescue mission, God's rescue operation launch in the Old Testament? He chooses a man named Abraham. We're going to hear about Abraham in, a moment, in the next few weeks in Galatians. And why does God call Abraham? You're like, I don't know. There's, it's not a trick question. We don't really know. God chose Abraham, you might say, by grace. And then because he chose Abraham, he says, look, your family is going to bless all families. So it was always a plan for the world, but, I, but it was going to start with one people. And then Abraham's descendants, fast forward, end up as slaves in Egypt. And God calls Moses and he says, I've heard the cries of my people this isn't God just generically concerned with the world. At that moment, he's saying, these people need to be rescued because they're my people, and that's how I'm going to save the world. So second question, why does God save Israel out of Egypt? Because they were his people. <laughs> Was it because they'd followed the law? You're like, well, there's no Ten Commandments at that point. There's no law yet. There's a covenant, but there's no law yet. So he chooses them by grace. He saves them by grace. And then he gives them a law as an expression of grace, saying, since you're mine, this is how you live. This is now how, if you're a parent in the room, you can relate to that. Since you're my kid, this is how Pachyums live. We're going to live this way. We're going to eat this way. We're going to, you know, all of this stuff. So the law is not a way to become God's people. It's a way to live since you are God's people. Can you track with that? So that's already there in the Old Testament. But then you're like, okay, Glenn, okay, but, but what's the deal? So, so circumcision is this way of marking out Jewish boys and, and, and the dietary stuff. I mean, why is this stuff so important? It became a way for God's covenant people to hold on to their identity while they were being dragged all around the region. So after enough time goes on, Israel starts worshiping idols. They're unfaithful to God. And they end up in exodus. Well, the, the country ends up splitting in two. One, gets scat one half gets scattered. The other half gets taken exile. And they're living in Babylon. And the central question in Babylon is, how can we, be, how can we show that we're faithful to God while we're in Babylon? And they decide, well, you know what? We can keep the Sabbath. We can circumcise our boys. And we can make sure that we don't eat like Gentiles. If you've ever read stories like Daniel, making sure Daniel doesn't eat what the king puts out, that's, th those are Jewish stories meant to sort of encourage God's people in Babylon saying, you can still live this way. You may not have a temple. You may not be able to do sacrifices. You may not be able to go to the synagogue. But you can control what you put in your mouth. 
You can control who you eat with. You can't. So these became ways of preserving Jewish identity. So circumcision and clean eating were ways of retaining their identity as the covenant people of God, dot, dot, dot. But, but it also, they were also ways of drawing lines and keeping score. It was, there was a good function of it. We're, we're faithful. But there was also a dangerous function. It was a way of saying, and we're not like you. Drawing lines and keeping score. Now, anytime you have lines and a scoreboard, you're also going to have referees. My favorite pastime now that I am no longer coaching my son and he's on a much better team with much better coaches, my favorite thing to do at games is to yell at the refs. I'm just kidding. I, try, I really try not to do that. But, but anytime there are lines and scores, there's going to be a ref. And that's what was happening in Paul's days. There were these referees coming up from Jerusalem saying, foul. You can't eat with these people. You can't do that. You have to do this. You have to become like us in order, in order to get in on this. And when we're tempted to think about how terrible that was, we can now just come back to our day and say, gee, do you think we have our own version of lines and scoreboards? Now I know, not at New Life East. But where I am at New Life Downtown, we sure do. <laughs> and some of the things we talk about at New Life Downtown, our versions of lines could be secondary lines that really have nothing to do with Jesus. And so we're like, yeah, yeah, they're a Christian, but... Did you see what they put on Facebook? Did you recognize which political? I think they lean left or I think they lean far right or and, and, and on and on we go. So we have Jesus lines, but then we have these secondary lines that are like, these are really my people. These are actually my people. And it could be like, well, well, you know, you know, I mean, they're, they're doing okay, but I'm not sure how they're investing their money, and I'm not sure how they're living this way. And, you know, they're having marriage trouble, and actually she got divorced. And all of a sudden you're like, it, my circle is only big enough for people just like me who've had just the same sort of life as me and the same sort of experience. But other people you are like, I don't know. And we have secondary lines that we keep drawing. What about scoreboards? I grew up at a church in Malaysia that was called Full Gospel Assembly. I love it. And they were excited because of the renewal of the Spirit. But it's also kind of a way of trolling other churches, isn't it? You know, like full gospel, like say our name. Because when you say our name, that's like reminding you that you are partial gospel. Not quite all of it gospel. I saw a cartoon this week of a guy drawing this huge chart of Jesus and his disciples and the church and, and then all of the, you know, and it splinters out and there's all this massive, massive line of church history and then he circles one little box and he goes, that's where our movement began and we finally got it right. <laughs> that's a joke, guys. It's a joke. It's like how we, how we are so convinced that we're the ones and everybody else is wrong. We've got these scoreboards. Our liturgy is better. Our songs are better. Our preaching is better. Or maybe our own personal scoreboards. I, 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 I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've, I'm married. I have kids. That's certainly better than being single. Unofficial ways that we do that in the church where we grade ourselves and grade others. 
What are our scoreboards? How have we become referees about who's in and who's out and who's winning and who's losing? And things that have really nothing to do with Jesus. Paul says in verse 16, he says, However, we know that a person isn't made righteous by the works of the law, but rather through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We ourselves believe in, believed in Christ Jesus so that we could be made righteous by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law because no one will be made righteous by the works of the law. Now over and over again he uses this word Christ and it's not accidental or incidental. Maybe if you're newer to church you're like, well it's just his full name, you know. In a way. But not his full name like Christ was his last name, you know. Like his parents were Joseph and Mary Christ with cute little baby Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. It's this Greek title, Christos, which means the anointed one. But it's the Greek version of this older Hebrew title, Messiah. What is Messiah? Messiah is sometimes, it, it, well, it's linked to being a son of David. You're like, okay, okay, I'm tracking. I know a story about David. David and Goliath, that's right. Now think about that David and Goliath story. David wins a battle on behalf of the nation. And his victory becomes their victory. That's what a Messiah does. A Messiah represents the people and wins something on their behalf. When Paul calls Jesus the Messiah, he's saying Jesus represented all of Israel. And where we failed, he was faithful. And where we fell short, he carried our guilt and was the faithful Israelite on behalf of Israel. Now, this is the other piece of the Old Testament stuff that we need to get right. We imagine that like the, the, the big cliffhanger at the end of the Old Testament is that, well, everybody was bad at, the, at keeping the rules, right? Isn't that right, Glenn? Like God gave rules, people are terrible at keeping rules, and so God said, fine, I'll just come anyway. <laughs> Actually, the problem at the end of the Old Testament is not law-breaking, the law gave provisions for what should happen if you broke the law. If you broke the law, you offered these sacrifices, you're fine. Law-breaking was not the problem. Covenant-breaking was the problem. Now, maybe you're like, well, I don't understand. What's the difference between the law and the covenant? Actually, again, not to use so, too many marriage and family examples here, but if you think about if you are married, you, you, you might understand. You might, you might see this at work in your own home. Every home has some sort of unofficial laws you're going to do the dishes, I'll do the laundry, you'll do this job, I'll do that, you'll get the kids then, I'll get the kids, you know. Now, you, a marriage can survive when you quote-unquote break the laws, right? Hey, I thought you were going to get the kids. Shoot! I thought you were going to cover this. And marriages can survive when you break the arrangements. But what really puts a strain in the marriage is when the covenant has been shattered. When there's an unfaithfulness. Then you're like, gosh, I thought you were committed that's what puts the strain on. It's not unrecoverable, but that's what puts the strain on. That's the idea of the Old Testament. God at the end of the Old Testament is not like, man, you're really bad at those, those laws. He's saying, you started worshiping other gods. <laughs> like you began to be unfaithful. So when Jesus comes, it's not God coming out of nowhere. It's not God saying, oh my goodness, scrap that plan and let's just start over. It's God saying, I'm going to stick with the original plan, but I'm going to be faithful on your behalf. This is why another kind of 
pause, side note. I, I hear sometimes or see on social media where people are like, why does it matter what ethnicity Jesus was? He could have been Indian or European or he's a universal Jesus. Listen, Jesus' salvation is for everyone, but it absolutely mattered that he was Jewish. It absolutely, because he's, he's saying, I made a promise to Abraham to use his family to save the world, but the people that were supposed to carry the blessing themselves became infected. It themselves became people in need of saving. So Jesus came as a seed of Abraham to be faithful on their behalf and then open up the way for all to be saved. In other words, church, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ changed the game. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ changed the game, put everything back on track and changed it in a new way. And Paul's trying to say this. He's like, this is why it matters. If you're still trying to be Jewish in order to be part of God's people, he's saying, you misunderstand how revolutionary Jesus was. He completed this game and changed it, and now everybody gets in on this. If you're with Jesus, you get in on this. And so then he goes on, he says in verse 17, but if it is, disco- is discovered that we ourselves are sinners while we are trying to be made righteous in Christ, then is Christ a servant of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild the very things I tore down, I show myself, I show that I myself am breaking the law. But I died to the law, through the law, so that I could live for God. Now, this is like, you're like, I'm just starting to get it now, but now this is a bit confusing. Look down at the floor in front of you. This is perfect that we're here at Grand Peak. Look at this floor. What are all these lines? <laughs> I mean, you're like, I don't know. I think the black lines are the basketball court, right? I, I don't know what the white lines are. Is that volleyball? Yeah, maybe. What about the blue lines? What are those? You're like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, badminton, is that what you said? Yeah, who knows what it is? I don't know. It's confusing when you've got many lines of different games on the same court. That's what was happening in the church in Galatia. You had Jewish Christians who were still trying to stay in the lines drawn by the Jewish covenant and the Jewish law. And Paul's like, hello, hello. Jesus fulfilled that one. That game is over. There's a new game. And these are the lines now. If you have faith in Jesus, you're in. And they're like, Paul, you're out of bounds. He's like, wrong line. Right? Does that make sense? So he says, if, if the law shows me to be, quote, unquote, a sinner, he's like, that's fine because I'd rather be a sinner, quote, unquote, under the law than be unfaithful to Christ and untrue to the gospel. Like the game has changed. The boundary lines are different. Then he says this beautiful set of verses, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and the life that I now live in the body I live by faith. Indeed, by the faithfulness of God's Son who loves me and gave himself for me. I don't ignore the grace of God because if we became righteous through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Maybe a way to sum this up is to say that Paul understood that Jesus redraws the lines and removes the scoreboards. Jesus redraws the lines and removes the scoreboards. And we're going to see in later parts of Galatians, it still matters how we live. And he says, I'm living now by faith in Christ. It still matters how we live. He's going to talk to us about the fruit of the Spirit versus the work of the flesh. He's going to talk to us in the very next chapter about faith in Christ. That there, it, it does matter. It's not a free-for-all and like, oh, whatever you want to do. He's saying, no, just make sure that you understand that the lines are now about Jesus. And a life that is consistent with Jesus. 
Those are the only lines that matters. But he does say the score, the way you used to keep score, that's got to change. That's got to change. And I wonder this morning as we come to a close, if we could think about how some of us are still drawing lines that have nothing to do with Jesus. Are some of us still drawing lines and saying, well, you know, I mean, I, li- I like this, but I don't like that. And, I don't, you know. and I'm not talking, listen, I'm not talking about healthy boundaries, toxic relationships. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how we decide about church and who's the people of God. And do our lines actually have something to do with Jesus or is it just really about our preferences? What the Jewish Christians were saying in Galatia is, hey Gentiles, you need to be more like us in order to belong to the people of God. And we do the same thing. Are we willing for God to send people to New Life East for us to reach people in our community that you're like, well, that would create quite a disruption here. Good. I told New Life Downtown last week that sometimes when we say I love my church, sometimes what we mean is I found people who are just like me. (laughs) But our prayer at every congregation at New Life is that we'd say, yes, these people are, it's it's an interesting group. Some of them are like me, some of them are definitely not like me. I would be thrilled if all across our congregations at New Life, people would scratch their heads and say, I'm actually, I'm really not sure how all these people ended up in the same room except for Jesus. Except for Jesus. That's, that's what we want. Drawing lines that have nothing to do with Jesus. But maybe we're drawing lines because we're still keeping score. And some of us are keeping score and ignoring the grace of God. Keeping score about other people, maybe, but maybe really, if we're honest, keeping score about ourselves. Maybe when you wake up in the morning or you get ready to come to church, you have this nagging voice in your head that says, you know, remember what you did. Remember how you acted. Remember how you... And so when you hear Colin say, hey, we need people to serve and join in in meal groups and jump in on teams, you're like, yeah... I'd like to be a marriage mentor, but my marriage isn't perfect. <gasps> I would like to lead a group, but I, you know, I just, I just lose my temper sometimes. I'm not, I, and you're keeping score and disqualifying yourself. And Paul says, if you do that, you're ignoring the grace of God. And look, look here we are in a gym. There literally are scoreboards where we meet. But what I love is we're not actually facing the scoreboard, but you know what we're facing is the cross. And Paul says, I don't know what the score is, but I do know the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And that's all that matters. That's all that matters. Sometimes people will say in church, like, or they'll say to us as pastors, hey, if a person came in like this, this, and this, and this, would you allow them to worship with you? Or would you turn away if someone was blah, 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 blah. And sometimes I look at them and I'm like, man, I don't have a sin scanner. Like our sin scanner is broken where people walk through the door and it's like, beep, 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 major sin alert. Oh, sorry, you're going to need to go somewhere else today. We don't have a sin scanner, but we are going to call everybody to repentance. We are going to call everybody to Jesus every week. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live the life I live. I live by faith in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I'm clinging to him. That's the only line. That's the only score. The Son of God loved you 
and gave himself for you. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? As we get ready to come to the Lord's table, we're going to pray a prayer of confession. And this is a prayer that we pray together. And it's all of these pronouns are plural. It's a way of saying it, we're, we're here together. The ground is level. We all need you, Jesus. So pray this with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. Now, Lord, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Now, church, hear the good news. Jesus, the Messiah was faithful on our behalf, opening up the way of salvation. The Son of God loved us and gave himself for us. And because of that, our sins are forgiven in Jesus' name. Amen? Now, as people who are grateful, forgiven people, would you stand now as we worship together? And then Colin will come up and lead us to the table. There's no other for me. 
that right now. Would you give the Lord thanks and praise. We express our gratitude to you, Jesus, this morning. We're aware today, God, that you drew the boundary lines to include us. Thank you that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we can have relationship with you, Lord, that you extended that to us. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed after he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you break the bread? He was pierced for our transgressions. Would you receive the bread? same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes which is a great mystery that you proclaim the mystery of our faith together Christ has died Christ is risen Christ will come again The grave could not hold him after his blood was spilt for our sins. He rose again. And as we receive this, would you remember that it's not the end? We receive the, the cup together. Would you receive this morning this gift that Jesus gives freely? 
And now we respond in worship. Would you lift your voices and sing the doxology? As we're sent from this place, I want to remind you, I want to invite our altar ministry team to come up to the front. And If there's something you need prayer for today about anything whatsoever, it doesn't have to relate to anything that was said in the service, but just you need someone to stand with you, pray with you. They would love to do that. That's what the family of God is for. Uh, or if you're new here, we'd love to invite you to Connect Central out in the lobby so we can help you find your place of belonging here at New Life East. Now all over the room, if you would, open up your hands. I want to send you out with a blessing today. Father, we thank you for your grace. (laughs) You've always been the God of grace. And even when we were unfaithful, still you were faithful. You found a way not only to suffer for our unfaithfulness, but to become faithful on our behalf. God, we're beyond grateful this morning. And so let your grace revolutionize our heart. (laughs) Let it change the way that we see ourselves, but let it also change the way we see others around us. And God, send us now from this place as carriers of your grace to bring good news to people, people who feel like they're outside or people who feel like they're quote-unquote losing. Lord, send us to be carriers of good news. Jesus Christ has won on our behalf. Send us to be messengers of this hope, this joy, wherever we find ourselves, today, tomorrow, the day after that. And bring us back together next Sunday rejoicing again. And so now, New Life East, go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for letting me hang out with you today. Enjoy your day.